Welcome to episode 319 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from self-quarantine in Owings Mills, Maryland. I'm Andrew Focus. I guess self-quarantine sort of implies that I have coronavirus. Uh, from social distancing in Owings Mills, I'm Andrew Brokus, and with me is Nate Mavis in Melrose, Massachusetts. Yes, also socially distance socially distance uh you know uh it, it's great to have friends whom i'm used to talking to over skype uh, <laughs> how you holding up uh, i'm fine i mean i i feel like i've been uh practicing for social distancing for a long time um yeah, yeah like just sort of being uh, off somewhere by myself and uh I mean, that's that's sort of my wheelhouse anyway. I mean, I consider myself extremely fortunate, both like not to find that psychologically taxing and also even among professional poker players, like to have a way of or like good ways of monetizing my time without being able to go to a casino. I've played a little bit of online poker, but honestly, I haven't even been doing a lot of that. I've just been doing like coaching, working on the book. Um, I just did... Uh, a large print edition of the original book that I'm getting ready to put out, which it turns out there's a lot more to that than just uh, select all, change font size. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. I, I, fortunately, there's some good guidelines you can find, but uh, it turns out the font size is actually not even the most important part. The uh, the font style is more important. The amount of uh, spacing, the way you justify the text. I, I learned a lot of doing it, but it was also more work than I expected. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm holding up. Bottom line, I'm I'm thriving to be honest. Although I, uh, you know, obviously feel very bad about what's going on in general. Yeah. Yeah. I, similarly. Um... Yeah, I'm 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 similar. I, I think I'm even more naturally prepared than you are because I'm, uh, as you know, I'm I'm a significant germaphobe already. So mm-hmm. like I, I'm I've I've been in the habit of not touching my face literally for years, um, and I also like vastly prefer working from home and and things like that. So uh, this is my time in the sun and literally in the sun. It's also unseasonably warm. Yeah. So um, yeah, 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 yeah. Many, but um. You know, statistically, somebody listening to this over the next few weeks is is going to have a loved one die of this, and I don't want to take that at all lightly. So, um, really, our sincere best wishes to everybody who's affected by this. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's probably uh, at the point where I mean, hopefully, this isn't necessary anymore. But like, take this seriously if you if you aren't um you know i'm neither of us is like an epidemiologist or anything but uh i mean i i do think i have a pretty good ability to sort out like quality information and actual experts from bs and i think you do also and uh, i think all of the quality information is pointing towards this has um potential to be very bad and there's a lot of good that you can do for yourself and for people around you by simply minimizing your risk of coming into contact with the virus yeah, yeah. I mean, I should say we're we're recording this on the evening of of March twelfth, twenty twenty. 
uh, as we talk, there's a lot of very weird data that seems almost impossible to explain. Like, why is it being transmitted in this way and not that way? And why is Italy so much worse off than other places? Like, there, there are just a lot of questions we don't know and basic, like, extremely puzzling things. But um, certainly lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of cause for legitimate concern. Um, so let's talk poker. <laughs> Um, we should say, and this might even be news to you, Nate, we have a new uh, strategy sponsor. Wait, whoa, whoa, hey, cool. Yeah, from um, Ryan LaPlante. I, uh, so we've had Ryan as a guest on the show for a few times. I've been uh, a booster of Ryan's for a long time. I've had opportunity to talk strategy with him both uh, on and off the air. I think he, he really knows his stuff both like strategy wise i mean i think he understands game theory well he also thinks about it in much the same way that i do which is to say you know he he knows the baseline but he's also very aggressive about deviating from it exploitably and has a lot of good thoughts on how to do that i also think he has a very good sort of meta mindset regarding things like tournament selection kind of like overall tournament strategy especially for different types of tournaments like progressive knockouts versus regular tournaments and stuff i just think he has like a really good head for the game in general yeah um, so that's i got yeah yeah ryan's amazing like he just says sensible thing after sensible thing and he combines that sense with also like extremely deep knowledge i think i, I remember being in ithaca like a long time ago uh thinking about some episode that we had recorded with him and i think we were talking about it after the fact and i was like oh that strategy segment was so good and it was one of the first times where you said and i immediately agreed that like you know it was good it's good to put stuff like that out there but also it was going to be like way above the heads of of a lot of our listeners <laughs> like it, it was one of the first ones or like i mean i i was keeping up you and ryan were saying extremely smart things and uh yeah i mean it, he's just really good he's just really good so he's got a site now uh yeah <laughs> this is fantastic <laughs> um we get money if you use our affiliate link okay so uh so maybe maybe we're getting <laughs> thinkingpoker.net slash lpp for learn pro poker uh thinkingpoker.net slash lpp and we will uh, automatic auto magically redirect you to uh but Ryan's site via our affiliate link, so it won't cost you anything extra, and we will get a portion of your sign-up money. Yeah, so definitely check that out, but we do have some strategy to talk to. We have nothing but strategy to talk about, really. We talked about uh, two minutes of, of uh, coronavirus strategy, and now we've got nothing but poker strategy for the rest of the episode. Nice. Let's do it. All right, so both of these hands, actually, um, do you, and this is a coincidence, I promise I did not specifically pick out hands that were, like, pimping my book, but um, both of these hands are, are inspired, I think, by reading Play Optimal Poker and by uh, trying to play a condensed range from out of position, and these are literally just the first two hands I pulled from the mailbag. Um, so the first one is played on Ignition. This is a $0.10, cent, $0.25 cent fast fold table. Our hero has 95 big blinds, and uh, everyone here at the everyone at the table covers them. So we're playing essentially 100 big blinds deep, uh, $25 effective at 10 cent, 25 cent, no limit. Our hero has king nine suited in the big blind, under the gun, raises to 75 cents, 
everyone else folds and action comes to our hero holding king nine of diamonds in the big blind. I don't really see doing anything other than calling here, agreed? Hero actually has jack nine suited, not king nine suited. Jack nine suited. Okay. Uh, now I think folding is bad. Yeah. How bad's folding? Like, I think it's a call, but folding isn't that bad. No, I don't think folding is that bad, especially not in a raked game. Um, that's something you know, like you really don't need to call that often in this uh, in this spot. Like this is pretty different from a tournament spot where there's antes that are like really increasing the the price that you're getting. I mean, I think this is one of the worst. Like I'm not calling Jack Eight suited here. I mean, now there's a big drop off in the value between Jack Nine suited and Jack Eight suited. Like even Ten Eight suited, I think is 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 getting a lot more borderline. Um, so yeah, I, I do think this is a, a margin like literally marginal call yeah so like my thought is if it were a two and a half x raise i would call easily uh if the raise came from a later position i would also call easily it wouldn't be very profitable but i would call easily this is just about this is just about zero ev um if there were no rake it's probably just a call 10 8 suited i'm folding jack 8 suited i'm folding yeah good so we go to the flop with a dollar sixty in the pot, and the flop is Ace of Diamonds, Eight of Spades, Seven of Spades. Our hero is holding Jack Nine of Clubs. So we've got a gut shot and two overcards to second pair. Uh, hero checks another gun, bets fifty one cents into a dollar sixty, so just about one third pot. Uh, what do you want to do now? Uh, Ace eight seven, yes. Correct. It was a flush draw we don't have. So one argument for raising is that we've got stuff and we don't want to call and we have jack high. An argument for folding is that we don't want to raise that much and there are better <laughs> candidates to raise than this one. Uh, I think like folding is underrated. I think I think some people will just like, get in a game and say like, oh, I've got too much of this board to to uh, to fold. Um, and there's something to that. You do have a gut shot and two overs to the second pair. Um, one issue is that because it's a three X raise, the eight and the seven aren't going to hit me as hard as they usually would. Like if I can pretty easily flop a pair, uh, I would probably just fold here, but still I have like a lot of aces in my range. I'm going to have some open end straight draws. I'm going to have flush draws, etc. Like it's not clear how much I want to be raising. And if I am going to be raising, I think I'm going to have better candidates. That said, if I'm check calling a fair amount, like with my aces and pairs that I can also check call some, um, some stronger draws. Maybe I do want to put some weaker draws into my raising range. Like I don't think calling is good. I don't see a reason to call with this hand. Um, it doesn't help you cover boards that you can't get by just calling better draws. Um, and I just don't see another reason to do that. I it, it's I guess there's like a pot odds. Sorry, is it fifty one cents into a dollar fifty? Into a dollar sixty. Dollar yeah, sixty. So oh, okay, so we're maybe like four to one. Oh, okay. Yeah, then just call. Don't raise. Okay. Sorry, I forgot <laughs> about the pot odds. So the pot odds are so good that you can just call with your hand that has two overs to second pair and a gut shot. Um, probably raising is tempting. Uh, but I think bad because you don't want to be raising that much and you have better candidates for raising. Um, so I would probably just check and call and, you know, maybe bluff later and maybe just check fold later. What do you think? 
Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think this this is not a hand, uh, certainly not at this price, that we'd ever be folding. Um, I'm pretty confident Pio Sauer wouldn't be folding this even to a larger bet, although it's certainly more marginal. But I think even if the bet is like a dollar, Pio Sauer is still probably not folding. Um, one, one, I think, big argument or, or something that recently has shaped the way I think about calling versus raising uh, is you want to think about the how well your hand this sounds kind of tautological like how well your hand plays as a call versus plays as a raise what i mean by that is um this is a hand where if you call and you turn a jack or a nine your hand has real value i mean it's still a hard hand to play it will frequently not be the best hand but like it also frequently will be the best hand if, if you call and turn a jack or a nine if you check raise and then turn a jack or a nine it's much less likely that you have the best hand with your pair. You, by check raising, you've substantially strengthened your opponent's range to the point where he often has an ace. And what you're doing in the process is killing whatever marginal value there is in peeling off a jack or a nine. Like obviously, if you turn a ten, you're happy to have check raised, but that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I think I would not be real inclined. Like if we had Jack Nine of Diamonds, where we had a little bit more potential to like end up running out a nutty hand, check raising could be a bit more appealing. We do want to check raise some hands that aren't flush draws, but uh, yeah, I think we will have we have other straight draws that are stronger than this one. I think even like five six would be a more appealing check raise because like turning off or peeling off a five or a six after check calling the flop is not as valuable so we're not like losing as much by kind of killing the value of those pair outs um check raising and yeah i, I think this hand just like plays pretty nicely as a as a call a lot of times when it picks up equity it, it picks up sort of like marginal equity where you're still happy that the pot is smaller yeah that's really well said that's really well said uh, our hero does call and we get a very interesting turn card, which is the Eight of Diamonds. So board now, Eight of Diamonds, Eight of Spades, Seven of Spades, Eight of Diamonds. So Ace, Eight, Eight, Seven with two flush draws. Uh, Hero actually leads $2 into a pot of 262. Thoughts? Interesting. So who's got more eights? Um... We've probably got some eights, but the bet on the flop was so small that we should have peeled with a lot of things that weren't eights. Um, let's see. Do we want to have a leading range here? I'm tempted to say no. This uh, is... Um, I mean, I have not actually run this in in like a Pio Salver, but it's very common when you like uh, second or third pair on the flop or your second or third card on the flop pairs those tend to be among the best situations for the sometimes the only situations where the out of position player develops a, a dump betting range it's also the case that typically the like ev ad of doing that like if you just turn off the option to dump bet the turn you usually don't lose a whole lot of ev at equilibrium so the best reason to do this would be because you think your opponent is going to respond poorly to it more so than because it's like a really crucial part of your equilibrium strategy but i think the equilibrium strategy would likely involve a substantial dump betting range here i think there's a good deal more 8x in the in the heroes range than in the villains um i just don't think it's it's not a spot i think where if we check to the villain 
Allen, where he's supposed to have a very high betting frequency. He just doesn't have that many hands. He has incentive to bet. Like if he doesn't have anything, he doesn't have a lot of incentive to bet again because our range is pretty heavy in ASX. Um, so like there's not that many hands that we're going to be check folding if he has nothing. And if he has an ace, he also doesn't have a lot of incentive to bet it. Um, his very best ace is like ace king is still a strong enough hand for him to go three streets. But because that eight is going to improve some portion of the range that he was beating, especially when he's blocking an ace by having one in his hand, he doesn't have as much incentive to be trying to go for three streets with like slightly weaker aces like ace queen or ace jack. So he just plays a lot of pot control when uh, when to check two here and denying him the opportunity to do that is nice when we actually have an eight. And then if we're going to develop a dunk betting range with an eight, then we want to have some bluffs in that range also. And jack high with neither of the flush draws. That's a pretty good one. Yeah, because, I mean, not having the flush draws means that we're blocking villains. So, like, if, if the villain were to have uh, an 8 in his hand, 9-8 uh, suited would be one of the most likely ways for him to do that. So having the 9 of clubs, when the 8s on the board are diamonds and spades, means that we block half of his combinations of 9-8 suited, right? He can only have 9-8 of clubs or 9-8 of hearts. So with the 9 of clubs in our hand, we block half of those. Um, I mean, for what it's worth, we're also blocking jack-8 suited. That probably shouldn't be in another gun opening range but you know i mean it's 10 cent 25 cent table i've seen crazier things yeah uh so like our hand does have a little bit of blocker value going for it uh, i think it's a fine cam. i mean it, it surely wouldn't be a 100 percent bet at equilibrium and we're still not doing a whole lot of betting in this spot but uh it, it's certainly a, a candidate and i think it's good that our our correspondent picked up on this this significant shift in in board texture yep you know, I, I mentioned that, uh, and, and he says this at, at the end of the hand, his comment is um, trying to play a condensed range profitably. And it is the case that like, if we're the big blind playing heads up against an under the gun razor, especially on a flop like this one, we are the player with the condensed range. Like under the gun has many more um, very strong hands, pocket aces, ace king. Those hands are more likely to be in under the guns range than in our range as the big blind caller. So we are mostly playing a condensed range. That's even more true after we check and call the flop. Um, the turn is an interesting card because it sort of uncondenses our range. Uh, because the turn card is, is, is so much easier, I think, for us to have an eight than for under the gun to have an eight. Right? We can have more eights in our preflop calling range than he's going to have in his preflop raising range. And um, so the, the fact that, that we actually are more likely to have nutty hands now, the, the turn is like the rare turn card that uh, shifts the... The, the balance of power here. So we're, we're now the the big blind actually has at the at the top end is more likely to have the very strongest hands. I guess not pocket aces, but like <laughs> is more likely to have trips than under the gun is. And that means we shouldn't expect under the gun to drive the action nearly as much as we expected to do on the flop. Like on the flop, it makes sense that we would just check our entire range to him because he has the polarized range and we have the condensed range, and it's a pretty significant effect on this board. But this exact turn card uh, shifts that dynamic, which is why it makes sense for us to start. But it doesn't mean we're betting our entire range, but we can develop a polarized betting range. I like it. Uh, the villain calls, and we go to the river with $6.62 in the pot. The river is the seven of clubs. So final board is ace, eight, eight, seven, seven. There were two flush draws out there on the turn, and neither of them came in on the river. Our hero still has jack nine. Um, he ends up betting $9.50 into a pot of 662, so about of uh, almost 150% pot. What do we think about that? Hmm. 
Let's see. Do we want to have a betting range here? Yes. Yeah, I think the same same dynamic applies as on the turn. I mean, the set, we sh- we shouldn't really have a lot of seven in our in our range after the, given that we don't the turn. But um, so like I don't think it matters that much that the seven puts out. Like we're just we're sort of representing eight flow or a bluff. Um, so like the the seven doesn't do terribly much to change our range. But uh, I think for the same reasons that we have a polarized range on the turn, we have a polarized range on the river. Yep. 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 Um. Do we want that range to be like? Do we want to overbet with that? Like, I can see the argument for betting big. I'm not sure why we want to bet so big, and enough that like we really don't want to get jammed on. Um, well, that's not true. Uh, this is tricky. So, putting aside that question, how good is Jack Nine as a betting hand? Um, I mean, I think all the same arguments apply on the turn. I guess the the one the one slightly weird exception is like there is a chance we actually have the best hand. Like villain yeah. could have ten nine or even five six, yeah. um, which we would be ahead of. So, but I still think it's very hard to take this hand to showdown. Like he should be bluffing those hands if check two. Um, he shouldn't really ever just be like checking back with a hand that can't even beat some of our bluffs but at 10 cent 25 cent you might see that sometimes i mean that's the only argument i can see for for this maybe not being a bluffing candidate otherwise like i think we um it's certainly and we we could bluff with like in theory we're supposed to have some hands that continue bluffing and some that give up and i don't know that we have a strong preference on uh which way we go with this one yeah and like he has a lot of reasons to bet a seven on the flop but you'll see people check that a lot um Though us betting the turn with the seven is is a bit odd. Uh, not that I would dislike it that much. Yeah, I think I'd dislike it. Um, yeah, I mean, so the that leaves. So I can see betting generally, and I can also see betting with this hand. So the question is like, do we want to bet this much? And my instinct is like, no. Uh, although I can see the reasons why we're more nutted than our opponent is and the idea is that he might have too easy a time calling with an ace if if we don't bet a lot um and bluffing him off an ace when we're bluffing is is nice so essential really i mean if we don't get him off of an ace i don't think there's much value in this bet yeah yeah um is he folding an ace for like 550 like i just it's just not clear he's folding an ace that much less often for 550 uh and the price is a lot better um, and I'm also just, you know, there's also just this very naive part of me that says like, it's not 2016 anymore. We don't think that overbetting is quite as good as we used to. So my, my own view is that I, I probably wouldn't try to have an overbetting range here. Um, but I don't hate it. I see the reasoning for it. And if you're going to have one Jack nine without the flush draw, sure. Uh, what do you think? I think the only thing well, there's there's two things that like constrain the amount that we can put into the pot here. Like at some point, which is much more than 150% pot, it starts to become a problem that like villain can have aces full and we can't. Like the actual nuts are more in his range than ours. Um, I guess like pocket aces is the actual nuts, but you know, like pocket aces is a pretty significant hand that's in his range and not ours. So we don't want to bet so large that it becomes trivial for him to fold unless he has a full house or better. I don't think we're anywhere near that neighborhood. Like I think this is still a bet size where it, 
is um, like so the other thing that's constraining our ability to, to bet is like the ratio of bluffs to value bets that we might have. Um, I don't think we're really in danger, especially because we don't have that much 8x in our range to begin with, and we have plenty of draws that we like peeled the flop with and might want to uh, then lead on on the turn. Um, I mean, if we are just representing like either we have an eight or we're bluffing uh, like if we we could if we could just tell that to the villain say look i either have an eight or i'm bluffing and i'm betting in exactly the right proportion you, you generally want to bet as large as you can or you want to bet as large as you can without making it trivial for him to just only call when he can beat an eight or when he has an eight so we want to bet as large as we can to where we're still forcing him to like have some sort of decision with with an eight so it's not just like trivial for him to fold those hands um i think if anything, it might even be plausible to bet more than this. Like, I don't think we're running out of bluffs. Yeah, I think I, his range is like way more heavy on ASX than it is on on full houses plus. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. And when you say yeah, I, I also tend to think like you said, setting aside the the like game theory for a second, my inclination towards like bluffing at smaller stakes especially trying to bluff people off of like relatively strong hands like top pair and especially trying to bluff on the river and especially trying to bluff um, a very narrow range yourself i mean my first piece of advice is generally don't do it like people do not like to fold top pair people playing 10 cent 25 cent are playing for fun a lot more than they're playing to make money and folding top pair is not fun so even if it is like the right play many people won't do it because it's not fun um so i I, like i do think you want to be pretty wary of doing this sort of thing especially at small stakes that said um if you are going to do it you need to like i am sort of a believer in the sledgehammer approach like i think people are way are a good deal less likely to make a really disciplined fold if you bet like less than the pot if you really want them to fold an ace regardless of what the math might tell them to do um if you really want them to fold top pair i feel like you do sort of have to like hit them over the head with the idea of like i have a full house i think like overbetting um, does that in a way that betting like 80 or 90% pot does not. Yeah. I mean, one sort of psychological and internal to me indication of this is that if you somehow put nine, eight in my hand here so that I had a really good hand, uh, I would not want to bet. And if I weren't worried about metagame concern, like if I weren't worried about range construction, like, um, I mean, there's really no such thing as choosing a play without worrying about range construction, but like, uh, I I would be worried about getting the call that I want from ASEX if I if I bet nine dollars, whereas I would not be nearly as worried about that if I bet five. Yeah, I, I think like for for exploitative reasons, it could make sense to bet larger as a bluff than we would for value. I think if we were concerned with balance, we still are probably wanting to make large bets because we do have a potentially bluff heavy and very polarized range. Like, I, I guess I, I don't see a lot of reason to bet smaller with our bluffs. There might be exploitative reasons to bet smaller when we actually have it. I agree. All right. Thank you very much, Sean, for the question. Our next one is coming to us from Chad. This is a tournament hand, a $5.50 tournament, the 5K guaranteed monster grind tournament on Bet Online. Our hero has a stack of 22K. Uh, at the 600, 1200, 120 level. So we're looking at uh, like 18-ish big blinds. Mm-hmm. 
uh, folds to hero in small blind with king nine offsuit. And uh, Chad emphasizes you only get 15 seconds to make your decision. I'm not sure if it's this tournament or this site, but it comes up a few times that he only has 15 seconds to make his decision. Um, so king nine offsuit in the small blind, 18 big blinds. What do we want to do? There are antis, yes. There are antis, yeah. I would I would put all my money in the middle. I yeah, I, I think I would as well. Um, I've been reading uh, Michael Acevedo's very good book, uh, Modern Poker Theory, and I think we don't do a lot of open shoving. I mean, we do some open shoving for 18 big blinds. I think in theory you can find slightly more EV by doing tricksy things like um, having more of an open limping range or like having a 3x folding range. Like you do have room to have ranges like that at, um, at an 18 big blind stack. But I think the EV gain from those kinds of things is relatively small. And when I were, if I were playing $5 tournaments, I wouldn't it wouldn't be the first thing I'd be focused on studying. Um, I think just like open jamming King nine off for 18 big blinds is a very profitable thing to do. I think all the other things you might do with King nine offsuit, like uh, trying to limp jam or small raise fold or small raise. I'm not even sure if it would be a fold or a call after we small raised. Um, it might actually be a small raise call, but like the fact that I'm not sure off the top of my head about the answers to those sorts of questions, tell me that I would either need to study this spot a lot or just take the easy play and open shove. And, you know, at some point, if you're playing like a lot of 10 Ks, you should probably study this spot a lot. If you're playing $5 tournaments, uh, I would study other things and open shove. Yep. I think that's good. Uh, there are definitely live opponents who I want, whom I want to have a limping range against. Um, and if I'm going to have a limping range, then maybe this is a hand to limp with. Um, but but my standard play is to jam. So I I think you can have a limping range here, and I still like the thing I don't like about limping this hand is I guess like what I said like I'm really not sure what would be the right play after limping it like whether we should be calling a shot or whether we should be jamming over a raise or whatever. It also is not a hand that plays great in a check check pot. Um, it has a good amount of equity on boards that it doesn't explicitly hit. So if the flop is like seven three two against a big blind checking range, king nine is still a pretty good hand. Like we have a lot of equity in that spot, but it's very hard to realize that equity. We're at a position with king high. Um, so like that's a that's the sort of spot you're going to get into often if you if you limp. Um, I think hands that play better as limps are either hands weak enough that they're not strong enough you know, that, that, they, that they can't shove, like a seven three suited or something. They're like it can flop reasonably well, but you don't really want to jam eighteen big blinds with it. Or hands that are so strong that it's not a big deal to let your opponent check and realize equity. Pocket aces, pocket big pocket pairs. Um, big suited cards are also like they play a good deal better um, in, in limped pots. It's not, I mean, check check is not what you're hoping for when you limp with those hands, but those hands suffer a good deal less from letting your opponent realize his equity in the big blind than when you limp with king nine off and let your opponent just check behind with like queen three offsuit or something. Like that's pretty bad for king nine. It's not that big of a deal for pocket queens. Yep. Sorry. Um, um, no, I, I just, in the lives, in the live game, you're going to, see a lot of people who play pretty bad after the flop mm-hmm. and in ways that are really good for king nine so like making sort of transparent raises before the flop with all the hands that king nine dominates and none of the hands that you know that or that that, that dominate king nine and none of the hands that it dominates like like it giving you an easy limp fold um and then also just letting you off the hook a lot or, or paying off badly after the flop so it's just an exploitive thing that comes up that i thought i would mention but yeah for sure just, just jam. 
Uh, our hero does open limp, um, and the big bun checks. So we go to the flop with uh, 2,400 plus uh, 9, 10, 80, and so 3480 in the pot, and uh, 21K in the hero's stack. So stack to pot ratio somewhere between 6 and 7. Mm-hmm. And the flop is king, queen, 4 with two hearts. Our hero does not have a heart. So our hero has king, 9 with no heart on a king, queen, 4, two hearts board. Mm. So if we're ahead, we're probably ahead by lots, like lots and lots. Um, boy, it would be great to have a read, but we don't. Um, <laughs> and we only so have big, 15 seconds. Yeah. Well, the big blind's going to have so much nothing that inducing a bluff feels pretty good. Um, like missing out on the chance to go three streets of value is not that bad because the stack to power ratio is not so high. Not that we can easily get stacks in, but we can easily get like most of the stacks in. And there's just so much nothing that I think at these stakes, a lot of it will just fold to a bet. And at any stakes, a lot of it will just fold to a bet. Uh, so I would check and hope to induce a bluff and not worry if if we go to a turn. Yeah, there, there's a pretty strong argument for, for slow playing here for the reason you gave. Like, because stacks are so shallow that you can um, play for stacks or, or close to stacks just with two. Like, even if it goes check, check on the flop, you can still make two big bets on the turn and river and get like most of the, the value from second best hands that you're going to get. So the, the ri- like there's, there's two risks to slow playing. One of the risks is not building a pot. And we don't really have to worry about that when the stack to pot ratio is, is as low as it is here. Like the pot is already... I mean, it's not built, built, but it's built enough that we don't need three bets to build a pot. So, and then the other risk of of checking is giving a free card. And if you're sloppy with your hand reading, it's easy to look at this board and think like, oh no, this is a terrifying board to give a free card. There's a heart draw, there's straight draws. Um, the truth is the villain's not gonna have all, either of those hands that often. I mean, he checked from the big blind. He has an extremely wide and extremely weak range. His, his range is weaker than any two cards because he's raising his strongest preflop hands. Um, so although he could have like seven three of hearts, he could just as easily have seven three of spades, clubs, diamonds, and more easily have seven three offsuit. Like most of the time he has no pair, no draw on this board. Um, and he's not folding the heart draws if you bet anyway. All of that said, he's also not supposed to bet very often when checked to. Um, I, part of why I thought this hand was interesting was the um, our correspondent here identified this as a situation where he thought he had the condensed range. And I don't actually think that's the case. I think in this situation where it goes small blind limp, big blind check, the small blind should typically have the stronger range. Because we just mentioned we might limp pocket aces. Like with 18 big blinds, I think that is 100% the right play with pocket aces is, is to limp them. So we can limp some very strong hands as the small blind, hoping that the big blind is going to reopen the action with a race. The big blind has no incentive to check strong hands. If you're the big blind here, you should not ever check pocket aces. You should not check ace king. Um, so when it goes limp check, the big blind is capping his range more than we are as the small blind. And typically going into the flop, there are probably some flops that are exceptions to this, but as a general rule, the small blind should have both the stronger range and the less capped range on on the flop. And it should be the small blind who is um, 
as a rule driving the action. I mean, both players, like there's plenty of boards where both players can have strong hands, but uh, the, the small blind does have somewhat of a range advantage in general. And the big blind is not really supposed to do a lot of betting when checked to, precisely because he's going to have so many bad hands. Um, now, you may find that many of your opponents don't really understand that, and they think that like a check on the flop is just a license for them to stab with anything, or they might overvalue their hands if they end up turn it like if they have seven three and they turn a pair of sevens, they might put more money in the pot than they should. Like lots of good exploitative things can happen as a result of checking. I think that the theory play might well involve betting here with king nine and just balancing it with a lot of bluffs and expecting the villain to get like appropriately stubborn with a lot of weaker hands that this opponent probably will not um i think here the uh a a, like weak opponent is more likely to make mistakes versus a check than a bet but i do think in theory we actually do not have the condensed range and should be driving the action yeah i like that that's that all makes a lot of sense so um our hero checks. The villain bets twelve hundred into. Uh, I think I said it was like thirty-four ish, so like about one third pot. Um, I could see a case for raising here for a lot of the same reasons that there's a case for betting, um, especially now that the villain is indicating some interest in the pot. Like it's a little bit more likely that he's going to pay off a raise than it was that he would pay off a bet initially. Um, now that he's indicated some interest in the pot, I could also see an argument for calling i don't know if i have too strong of an opinion but i'm curious if you do uh no i don't (laughs) Uh, our hero did call and the turn was the nine of clubs so the board now king of hearts four of spades queen of hearts nine of clubs our hero has king nine with no heart so it's just turned to pair uh, given that we checked and called the flop, I would not be real inclined. Like this does not strike me as a card that uh, you know changes the balance of power. Like now that we've checked and called the flop, we do have the more condensed range. Right? The, the villain has um, represented a strong hand by betting the flop. He may or may not have one, but he's represented one by betting the flop. We've represented a condensed range by just calling the flop, and this is not a card. I mean, we should have some jack ten in our range. He should probably have more jack ten in his. Other than that, I mean, we happen to like have a hand that sort of in a sneaky way was improved by the nine, but in general, the nine is not like doing more to improve our range than it is to improve his. So I think there should be a pretty strong default towards checking here. And uh, Chad picks up on that. Chad checks. The villain now bets 2340, which is about 40% of the pot. Um, I believe after calling the flop, Chad had about 20K. So we're looking at a stack to pot ratio of somewhere between three and four when we see the turn. And uh, now we've checked and facing a 40% pot bet. Mm. So jamming is tempting. Like, probably we're going to have some... Like, are, are we going to want to bluff jam? Uh, surely sometimes, right? Uh, yeah, I could say, like, if we checked and called hearts on the flop, we might check raise the turn, especially if we had, like, 9x with a heart, where on the flop we just had a flush draw, and then we turned a pair to go with the flush draw, or, like... Yeah, I mean, I, I can imagine hands where we check call, flop, check I, raise, turn. As well, like, ace-10. What about ace-10? Yeah, that's a good example. Yeah, Ace Jack. Yeah, I think I'm in the basically the same end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just, well, I'm just. I'm yeah, 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 I hear it. Yeah, yeah. Eh, go all in. <laughs> That's kind of the way I'm. I'm leaning. I, I think a lot of people are probably gonna like 
have it a bit more than they should here and be a little disinclined to fold. You also might find that people don't triple barrel that much. So if he doesn't have anything, it might be that you're not getting any more out of him anyway. Um, right? Like he might just yeah. be barreling twice and then shutting down on the river. Uh, draws are probably the best reason to raise at this point. It's um, if the villain did have some sort of draw, check raising puts him in a bad spot because now he either has to call off from way behind and put in a lot of money. You know, when he's not a favorite, he might have the right odds, but you know, he's still he's still giving up some money when he does that. Um, or he has to fold away his equity in the pot. Versus when you check call the turn, he can then on the river play pretty well against you. Um, I mean, he might bluff the river, but that's probably not more profitable for you. Like given that you're not going to be check like you shouldn't be check folding any river here. So um, you, know, you are going to be paying off his flushes when they get there. So unless you think that he's going to do like too much bluffing on the river, um, you don't have a lot of incentive in just like letting him um, see river cards when like, I, I just, I think this is, yeah, you just like playing the playing the river out of position is not that exciting. He'll occasionally value that worse, but in general, he's gonna be like oftentimes on the river. He'll be representing a stronger hand than yours when he when he bets. Um, so yeah, I I would kind of rather just get it in now on the turn. I guess the argument against doing that is like blocking the king blocks a lot of his calling range. Uh, like I wouldn't be surprised if this is another one that like either gets mixed or gets slow played a decent amount at equilibrium. But I think there's a lot of reasons to think that in a real life opponent, I would rather err on the side of just check raising all in and in tournaments, you'd rather take the lower variance line, which believe it or not is check raising all in um, playing the river out of position is going to be higher variance than just raising when you almost certainly have the best hand now. Yep. Uh, there are, there are really a lot of ways for a straight card or a card that pairs the board yeah. In one of the places you don't have it, or even an ace to a lesser degree, uh, comes, and those are all tough. I guess a heart maybe, but um, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's lots of rivers where your hand loses value, even if it still has value. It still has value on all those river cards. Like your hand is still pretty good on any river, but it's definitely going to be less good on any of those rivers you just named than it is right now. Yeah, and to state the obvious, in part because it makes some of your value targets even even weaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, our hero ended up just calling. Um, he said... Uh, I don't think he said anything really worth reading just yet. Okay, so uh, the river is the nine of clubs. There's now... Uh, no, that was the turn. The river is the ten of diamonds. The final board is king of hearts, four of spades, queen of hearts, nine of clubs, ten of diamonds. This is one of those rivers you were worried about, Nate. Our hero has king nine. There's now king, queen, ten, nine on the board. So the value of our hero's hand has declined precipitously. Um, and this is my favorite part and part of why we have this hand on the show. Um, <laughs> Chad says, I then proceeded to do something I would not have done six hours later after reading the section in Play Optimal Poker about polarized versus condensed ranges that described not betting for value out of position when the person in position has been the aggressor on previous streets. What I was thinking of is something I have heard discussed on Thinking Poker about the dangers in checking the river to induce a bet for value. I bet 55% pot and he folded. Um, so yeah, I do not think this is a good spot to bet out on the river. Um, I don't even, I, I mean, I think the fundamental problem is that we don't have that much of a value hand anymore. Like, I don't think it's so much a problem of like, this isn't a good way to play a value hand, although it kind of isn't, but like our hand value, like this is one of the worst river cards there is. Yeah. 
Um, so I think if you wanted to play your hand aggressively, and you did, uh, the time to do that was on the turn. And I will say in the very next paragraph, Chad says, I believe I should have check raised the turn. So he, he, he gets this. Um, but yeah, it's like what you did essentially was you slow played your hand until you no longer had a strong hand, and then you tried to better for value. So you want to get the value while you still have a, a strong hand. This actually is a board texture changing river where like if you had actually just rivered uh, a straight, there would be good reason for you to bet with it because you wouldn't want to give your opponent the opportunity to check behind like two pair or something else like that might be strong enough to call that but might not value bet when checked to. So I do think there's like I don't think you necessarily have the condensed range like you can have nutty hands. You happen to have a hand that is closer to a king in the ace king queen game. Um, and I would I, I think it's too thin to try to bet this for value from out of position. I think the best you can hope for is that it goes check check. And um, if your opponent does bet, then you probably just have a hand that's like a zero EV bluff catcher, or like it might be slightly plus EV. He could be trying to value bet worse. Like I think I would call with this hand unless he made like a really big bet, but um, it's not a particularly good spot to be in. Yep. Um, he concluded, my buddy and I have a saying when talking about hands we believe we misplayed on bet online, which is, 15 seconds is not a lot of time, man. It didn't take me a lot of time. It didn't take me long to regret it after. Having not checked the turn, I'm starting to think I also misplayed the river and should have checked that. But I also think there may be factors here I'm missing. So, yeah, hopefully we covered that pretty well. Um, I think you're, I mean, you're right to be thinking in terms of polarized and condensed ranges. This is just a really tricky spot in terms of who has the polarized or the condensed range. It's, it's pretty counterintuitive. Like we're accustomed to the, um, the player who like just called preflop having the condensed range, because usually what you're calling is a raise in this case, what you're calling is a blind, which is why you're not the player with the more condensed range. But this is a tricky situation. These situations when ranges are really wide, um, especially when the player is going to be like splitting his range the way you should be with your open limping from the small blind with the stack size because you do want to have an open shoving range like pocket twos is a hand you 100 want to shove it's like it's a great hand to get all in pre-flop it's a terrible hand to limp with so like you definitely want to have a shoving range in this situation it's just a question of whether you also have a limping range and this stuff gets really complicated to try to figure out like what's in whose range and which board favors who and to appreciate all of like the huge amount of air that's going to be in both players ranges this is one of the trickiest spots to analyze in poker um the good news is it's also not one of the more high value spots and that's why i say like or that's why we say you can just take the easy play stick it all in pre-flop and um focus your studying efforts elsewhere yeah I'll also say that like you're allowed to think during your opponent's turn and everybody knows that and it sounds a little condescending but for me I still you know after all these years uh, when it's on my opponent I have a hard time sometimes thinking oh what if a 10 comes what if a heart comes what if this instead of like huh I hope the 10 doesn't come, you know, <laughs> or, or like uh, I wonder if the Cowboys are going to cover the spread you know uh, yeah um, I mean, nobody's covering a lot of spreads this week, but uh, but there, there's that. 15 seconds is not a lot of time, but it's not a lot of time for your opponent either. And if you are thinking during his turn and he is not thinking during your turn, you will have an edge. Bonus. All right. Well, thanks for making time for this, Nate. Thank you for listening, everyone. And uh, hopefully we'll have an interview to bring you. I, th I think, I mean... 
another upside of everyone staying home is it should be a little easier to uh, book guests. Yep, 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 yep. Stay safe, everyone. Have a good week. Have a good night, Nate. of a car the light of the fair passage of a bill and who will sign us into law I know you won't you won't you won't you won't will you you won't you won't you won't you won't will you you won't you won't